The first boats that harnessed the wind to skip over the waves may have been built 8,000 years ago. Several hundred years later, the earliest seaborne trading networks began to form in the Aegean and the Persian Gulf. Discs painted with visual depictions of sailing boats have been found in modern-day Kuwait, part of the Middle East region once known as the ancient Fertile Crescent. They show reed ships rigged with simple sails attached to a mast. Although the tools had not yet been developed to shape wooden planks for more advanced designs, the new invention liberated early seafarers from their reliance on human strength to traverse the seas. In the millennia since, humans have explored, conquered and proliferated across every landmass on the planet. Linked by the sea and hundreds of thousands of enormous ocean-going cargo ships, we're now one interlinked global community. The maritime sector had become something new, a web connecting the world. But it was not just the scale of the industry that had changed. Around 200 years ago, with the birth of the Age of Steam, the driving force of ships began to change once again, as ships began to burn first coal and then other fossil fuels. Modern cargo shipping relies on bunker fuel, a thick black sludge made from the dregs of the refining process. It's also loaded with sulphur, which produces gases and particles hazardous to human and animal health, although specific targets have been put in place to reduce the sulphur content. More broadly, the industry knows it has a problem. In the fourth greenhouse gas report produced by the International Maritime Organization, or IMO, in 2020, shipping was found to produce 1,076 million tonnes of greenhouse gases in 2018. This was up 9.6% from 2012 and represented 2.89% of total global anthropogenic emissions. It's a problem that's been recognised and there are solutions being developed. But for the maritime sector, changing course is rather complicated. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. In this episode, we are looking at the problems facing the maritime sector and some of the ways in which it can cut its carbon emissions now. We'll discover that there's major questions that the industry needs to answer, decisions it needs to make. But also, there are some easy wins, low-hanging fruit, if you like, that's just waiting to be plucked. There's an increasing awareness on the need for shipping to decarbonise, and I think that's really very helpful. I mean, I saw a headline today in the newspaper that cruise ships are back and it's a catastrophe for the environment. We wouldn't have dreamed of seeing that sort of headline six months ago. We've become, as a global society, much, much more aware of shipping and the impact it has on climate change. And 90% of everything that we consume is moved by sea, and the shipping industry is responsible for nearly 3% of global greenhouse gas emissions, which is as much as Canada or Japan or Germany, three times as much as the UK. So, you know, we're working our socks off to drive emissions out of the UK, so the shipping industry needs to do more. This is Diane Gilpin. She is the founder and CEO of Smart Green Shipping, a startup that designs potential solutions to help shipping go green. She has one of the most interesting CVs of any of our guests. She was a pioneer in motor racing, being the only female to manage a Formula 3 racing team in the 1980s. 
She managed yacht racing teams in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Hence the interest in shipping. Yeah, and went on to pioneer renewable energy, such as wind power and anaerobic digestion, with the B9 Energy Group from the early 2000s. This led her to creating and leading B9 shipping, from which smart green shipping was developed. Once she had committed to green shipping, and knowing the pressing need facing the industry, she wasn't going to walk away. Having invested all that time, why would it, you know, it's going to happen tomorrow, so why would you not? That's the that's rationale. In the UK, a lot of the aspirations to improve the maritime sector are spelled out in the government's Maritime 2050 strategy. It's the first document you want to read if you have a question about the future of the country's shipping concerns, and we've linked to it in our show notes. The document's all about revolutionising the industry through technology, strategy and regulations. And also in there are the industry's carbon reduction targets. A reduction of 50% by 2050. This target was lobbied for and agreed to at a 2018 meeting of the IMO. But when compared to the more general targets adopted by the UK... It's low. In 2019, the UK became the first major country to commit to bringing all greenhouse gas emissions down to net zero by 2050. The ones imposed on shipping seem lenient? So first off, I would say that it's not enough. It's not Paris compliant. So if we reduce emissions from shipping against a 28 2008 baseline by 2050, that won't be sufficient to meet the Paris 1.5. The aim to limit temperature increases to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. It's difficult because the IMO has to try and secure consensus across 174 different countries and each of them come to the table with different agenda. Some are driven more by commercial than environmental issues. So some of them are oil producing countries and their entire economy depends on oil. So for them, and shipping is a big consumer of oil. And so there's a symbiotic relationship between shipping and the oil industry in that shipping carries a lot of oil and the oil industry sells a lot of oil to shipping. So taking oil out of that equation is, 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 is a big deal for both sides. So how do we do it in a way that, that works? And 2050, 50% by 2050 is a target and that in itself is an achievement. It is way too far in the future and that's the thing that worries me most. The modern shipping industry has developed with a fuel-centric approach to solving problems. Basically, we need a new fuel to carry on as we are. The problem with that is that we don't know what flavour alternative fuel would work for shipping. It could be ammonia, it could be hydrogen, it could be electrification. There's all sorts of different options. All of these options depend on a significant infrastructure investment on the land side which would be different for each fuel. So what that means is that the shipping industry says, you provide the fuel and I will visit your port and, 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 and pay for bunkers, pay for the fuel from your port. But, you know, that's a really difficult, it's, a, it's like the electric car and, and, and recharging. Until the market demand for electric vehicles is there, industry will not invest in charging stations. Shipping needs to have a similar demand side driver. So if we say, okay, so if we collectively say as an industry, yay, what we're going to do is we're all going to, we'll agree that we're all going to hydrogen. That's, that's what we'll agree. 
Now, there are multiple interest groups in that discussion, and there's a bunch of other people going, well, it should be ammonia. So that discussion is not easy to reach a conclusion. And there's some other people going, well, it's methanol. And so, or biogas, or, well, let me have LNG for the, in the meantime. You know, so there's always different flavours. And so we can't decide on that. And until that decision is made, no one's going to invest in the infrastructure. And the infrastructure site investment isn't going to come out of shipping. That's going to come out of national budgets. So they're not going to invest until they've got a really clear picture of what the demand is going to look like for the infrastructure that they're building. The big questions facing the IMO and its constituent nations are around fuel. And it perhaps is understandable that it gets tunnel vision on this issue. Big container shipping companies have very few alternative solutions other than a fuel. So that's where the conversation gets narrowed. But there are a multiplicity of solutions for lots of other ships that aren't container ships, like bulkers and tankers, that could carry wind, they could go slower, they could, there's all sorts of other options that we could deploy now in the short term whilst we figure out what the fuel of the future is. I'm not saying we don't need to figure that out, we definitely do, but we need to be figuring out simultaneously what are we going to do about driving emissions out of shipping right now? How do we do that? A recent study conducted for the UK's Department of Transport identifies what the potential impact of renewable sources of propulsion could be. Which suggests there's about 37,000 to 40,000 of those vessels in the fleet that could use wind. So it's a sizeable portion of the global fleet that has the potential to use these devices. According to Department for Transport Statistics, at the end of 2020, there were around 62,100 vessels in the world trading fleet, with a total deadweight tonnage of 2 billion tonnes. By this deadweight measure, the world fleet has doubled in size since 2005. And there's a number of ideas in development. Smart Green Shipping has come up with one called Fast Rigs, which involves retrofitting huge sails to cargo ships and tankers. These can fold up and down as required, with no extra crew involvement. This particular system is suited to existing commercial vessels that have lots of available deck space, for example dry bulkers and tankers, because freestanding rigs still allow access to the holds. SGS estimates that some 10,000 of these ships are suitable for conversion to a sailing hybrid, i.e clear deck space, windy routes. Smart Green Shipping recently completed a year-long Innovate UK and Institution of Mechanical Engineers backed case study into the feasibility of fast rigs. So we have a cargo owner which is Drax. Now they're importing biomass into the UK from the States and that's a renewable fuel. They want to, they want to have a green supply chain and they can't buy it. So they've brought their ship owner Ultrabulk to the table and, and, and Ultrabulk have been so valuable in allowing us to have access to their ships to measure the distance between the, the hull or the hold and, the, and the, the bridge or whatever it is and talk to the crew and understand what the visibility issues are, understand what the constraints so really get deep into how does this thing going to work in the real world. The team produced a model of the Ultrabulk Tiger for computational fluid dynamic analysis. They then virtually fitted six 60-metre-high rigs 
onto the Tiger and then generated force and moment data to analyse performance and fuel saving potential. They ran the simulation using meteorological data sets covering three decades of statistical likelihood of wind speed and direction, then tested at different start dates within each season and measured fuel consumption. The result was a 20% average annual fuel saving across all seasons at normal operating speeds. We've linked to the study results in the show notes. I can share with you, if it's of any help at all, an animation of the, of the rigs in action. Again, please check the show notes. In, in physical form, the wings look like more like an aircraft wing than the Cutty Sark. So they are steel footing with aluminium sections making up the wing and there's a, a solid section and then there's a flap so that you can maximise the amount of wind that you can harness. The best option for the sail material is extruded aluminium. Double skinned, hollow, it's extra strong, light, affordable, recyclable, a much better option than composites. The rigs themselves are also intelligent and sensorised. And they know which way the wind blows and they know the strength it's blowing. And so if it's coming from, I don't know, say the northwest, the rigs will turn on a, effectively a ball bearing. They will turn to capture the amount of wind, the best amount, the optimum amount of wind from that direction at that speed. If the wind is too great, and it's pr proving to be a safety risk, the, the rigs know that they have to lower onto the deck and get out of the way. If there's not enough wind and the rigs are just creating an obstacle, they fold down and get out of the way. So that we can fully optimise the availability of wind when it's there and get the rigs out of the way when the wind's not there or, it's, or there's too much of it and it makes it dangerous. And although no crew is required to activate or deactivate the rigs, there is manual control available in case of emergency. The big red button. Overall performance for this and similar wind systems is measured on the reduction in energy requirement to operate, as you would within the same parameters as a non-fitted ship. And that gives you the measure with which to judge competitors. I have a background in racing. I come from motor racing and yacht racing. There is nothing better than having a competitor who you think is going to go faster than you to make you think really hard about how you're going to do it. If we say, oh, we can do 20%, then someone's going to come in and go 25%. Oh, I can do 30%. That arms race is what we want to engender. However, the first hurdle is investment. So the biggest challenge we've got is that, and I really understand this, the industry doesn't want to buy the technology off the back of a computer modelled study, which is what we've done. We must put physical test and demonstration fast rig onto a ship and operate it in the real world. You need to prove the technology to the market before it'll buy. And the shipping industry is not set up to invest in the innovation and R&D of their technology because the emissions reduction target isn't stringent enough or it isn't close enough so there isn't an R&D budget facility within the shipping industry. So the industry wants to buy it and we've got lots of letters of support and commitment from the industry that says once you've proven it we'll buy it and so that's the problem. How do you get a 60 metre high rig onto a ship and tested in the real world when there's another three years before you might see a commercial return on the investment? 
And this is what the technology providers need to overcome. Diane calls it the development hump, although she admits that some other innovators she has met call it the valley of death. There is a growing awareness geopolitically that change needs encouragement. The EU and China are both looking at emissions trading schemes that could include shipping. And for the EU, this is looking increasingly likely. It's very, very likely to in the light of the last IMO meeting, which was uh, a very lacklustre outcome in terms of ambition. And so the EU has been suggesting that it would include shipping in its emissions trading scheme. This would have a profound impact. It means that a shipping company would have to pay for the carbon emissions it generates if it visits a European port. That would make a huge, huge difference. It's very difficult to implement as a, as a single trading block because there is a possibility that ships would then not deliver to that particular region because they'd have these extra costs. But there is a growing thought that the US might produce a similar emissions scheme. Add this to China's plans and the EU's, and you have the majority of the world's economy forcing shipping to internalise its carbon costs. And you don't necessarily need multinational cooperation to make it happen. The ideal solution is for the IMO to do it, but I think we need to put more pressure on them to get more ambition in their targets. And, and you know, the crazy thing is that it makes shipping better, makes it cleaner. You can make it cheaper for everybody. And the power that you generate, particularly from primary renewable energy like wind, is much, much more efficiently used directly on the asset. Rather than by generating renewable energy from an offshore wind turbine, then taking that energy, using it to make hydrogen, taking that to a bunker supply and putting it back on a ship. You've lost I think it's 70% of the energy requirement, or 70% of the energy from the initial power in that transference. So where we can use primary energy at source, use it because it's free and it's abundant and it's exclusively available to that ship and that industry. Whereas if they're bidding for hydrogen against, say, bus companies on land, it would increase the price a shipping company would pay when it has direct access to wind already. So we can build more fuel autonomy into the shipping industry by using primary renewable energy at source. But all of these ideas require political action to enable them, to break the inertia and make progress. Over the last year, the sense of inevitability around approaching disasters has changed. The idea that societal and government inertia prevents effective action seems to have gone. What does an emergency response look like? We now know from COVID what an emergency response looks like. And the production of a vaccine happened really, really fast, but it was built on decades of work. And the application of you know, sufficient money that was commensurate with an emergency response. We are facing a climate emergency. We've done, collectively, we've done decades of work to look at how do we decarbonize this sector but we just don't have the money to do it. So I don't think the, the, the emergency response is commensurate with the scale of the, of the climate emergency that we're facing.
Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Bernadette Ballantyne. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young. And our own sustainable sea dog is Rory Harris. For more information on Smart Green Shipping and some of its ideas, check the links in our show notes. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter and on LinkedIn.